Hello, everyone. This is Robert Gowan. You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast. And uh, with me tonight is going to be uh, Scott Kinder, and we have a guest host that's joining us as well. That's Susan Deo. You may know her for uh, on Twitter as Girl uh, Master Sergeant, and um, she's going to be helping us in today's topic or tonight's topic on Lost in Translation. And uh, so welcome, everybody, uh, in the Mixler chat room as well that's uh, on there. And if you're listening to us now, uh, live now and you're not in the Mixler chat room, you have to create an account, and uh, you you do that by just going in. You can use your Facebook profile or your Facebook information if you want to and stuff and set it up rather easily. Mixler is at mixlr.com, and uh, the cool thing about it is it allows you to uh, chat live with us while we're on the air. Otherwise, you'll listen to this in kind of the tape format, either at the mentorsformilitary.com website, SoundCloud, or iTunes. So once again, thank you for joining us, and uh Guys, we're just going to jump right into this uh, because I think it, for me, um, there's several different things that kind of go on when you're talking about um, being lost in translation and trying to uh, transfer your skills. Um, but uh, Susan, you're probably very familiar with this, especially coming from the Marine Corps. So maybe, you know, what you could do is tell us a little bit about your history and your background and certainly why it is that you came into the Marine Corps, as well as maybe some of the transitional uh, struggles that you may have had with that. Well, I, um, I'm the daughter of a guy who joined the Army, so the reason I'm a Marine is because my dad was in the Army, and uh, he, he served six years in the Army uh, back in the early 60s. He was a motor team mechanic, and he raised us kids in a very strict manner, so we were all very ready to leave home when we turned 18. So when I decided I was going to leave, I was going to join the Marine Corps because I was going to be better than him. So <laughs> that was my story, right? Yeah. So I served um, 22 years in the Marine Corps. I enlisted on my 18th birthday, and uh, I was admin. So I sat at a desk for 22 years and uh, didn't get to deploy, didn't get to go to war, didn't get to do anything exciting. I basically sat at a desk. So uh, when I retired my husband was working and the plan was that I was just going to get out and raise kids so I retired I went to the transition classes I didn't listen didn't pay attention didn't ask questions because I was going to be a stay-at-home mom so I got home we stayed home for about I don't know six or seven months and my kids had had enough of me and they said you need to get a job and go back to work we're, we're tired of you so I went and um, contacted some friends, actually a recon Marine that I was stationed with at Quantico, who retired a year before me, and contacted him, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm in Ohio, and I'm bored. I need a job. My kids are sick of me. He said, send me your resume. So I said, all right. So I sent him my resume. He called me back, and he said, your resume sucks. So <laughs> That's a nice he, friend, yeah. Yes. So he rewrote it, and... Um, turned it into a government contractor here in Ohio and um, I, they called me and I interviewed and they build things for the military so they were kind of used to our personality per se so I got hired and I've now been there nine years I've been doing the exact same job for nine years um, I have since though rewritten my I actually paid someone to rewrite my resume because I had a couple struggles and I think lost in translation is, is the perfect description of the struggles that I had. So when you spend 22 years in the Marine Corps and admin, everyone thinks you're HR, but I really never did HR in the Marine Corps. 
I did a lot of operational stuff, even though I sat at a desk, but I was in charge of money, I was in charge of people and numbers and counts and stuff like that. So I really didn't know how to make that into a resume to say that I knew how to do something other than payroll. Um, so I ended up having to hire somebody to take all of my experience and make it sound like I could do something in the civilian world. What I did with that resume after I got it rewritten was I got promoted. Um, in my job to what I do now, which is master scheduling, and I basically schedule production in a manufacturing facility. So um, that's kind of my story. That's a great story. And actually, the uh, Lost in Translation comes out of a chapter of my book because I thought the exact same thing in my own personal um, experience is that, you know, you kind of you have to understand it's almost like speaking a different language. Um, yeah, I mean, the private sector really um, has to uh, understand the military. In most cases, they don't, and they don't have people who are trained to understand the different languages. We're not trained to always not use acronyms or military jargons because we're used to doing that, and um, which we're going to get into in just a moment. Um, but I think that's um, the reason why I kind of captured that because I, th I felt like it was almost speaking another language when I was getting out and it was the same thing that I heard over and over again from those that were separating. Yeah, and, and even in the nine years that I've been in my, in my current job, they still kind of treat me like, oh, she's just the Marine because I never really had to and never was forced to learn how to be PC in the civilian world because I work for a government contractor and I work with other people who served in the military. We kind of get away with it, never, never being forced to learn how to speak correctly. Right. Yeah, and I think that's uh, in the case, especially, um, you know, I, I, coming from the combat arms world, especially if you end up getting into um, that arena, you tend to um, use terms like, you know, I don't know, certain military terms and stuff of how you describe things. Um, Hua gets used a lot. Um, you know, Roger, uh, you know, those types of things to where you end up, um, when you separate, it's also hard to break those because you're so used to using those. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure the Marine Corps, it's uh, pretty much the same way. Um, because there's a certain type of, um, th there's an expectation, I think that's, you know, within the certain fields, you know, combat arms or those types of things as well. There is. I actually got told about a month ago by my boss that I needed to stop using the phrase, please advise. Uh, see, there you go. Please, yeah. yeah. Please advise is too harsh. It's, it's too military-like. You need to use something else. Yeah, totally. It's a, it's a struggle. So what, what I want to do is I want to jump into it because when we started framing this out, Susan, we started thinking along the lines of, okay, it's kind of like um, how, what, and when. So um, in, in the first step, it's kind of like you got to learn how to translate. Because when you think about um, trying to tailor your, your personal brain and yourself to the private sector, you've really got to go out there and help them understand what it is that you did. And Google is amazing. Yahoo is amazing. Use these search engines to go out there and help you because you're going to find that there are a lot of job descriptions that can really help you in trying to to take what you do and apply it to those same types of positions or industries that you're looking at. Uh, because when you start looking at it, you go, hey, I used to do that. And we talked about this last week in the podcast, but it becomes really easy when you, you use those things. Uh, but it's, it's learning that you've got to drop things like acronyms. I mean, we're really big in the military in using acronyms uh, because we, um, we start uh, – 
you know, uh, applying everything to what we believe to be a shorter way of communicating. Um, so in some cases, acronyms, when you say them, end up being longer than just spelling it out. Uh, but we tend to use those quite often. And uh, because of that, um, we can start alienating ourselves because nobody likes to try to figure out what an acronym is on a resume or in an interview process or anything. They don't want to have to ask you, Susan, okay, what does that mean again? OPSEC or, you know, uh, whatever. So, you know, you've got to make sure that you take those things out. Uh, Military jargon we kind of talked about uh, a little while ago. Even when you start talking about equipment um, or, you know, different types of things like titles, uh, phrases, you know, you've got to really uh, concentrate on not uh, trying to use jargon. You know, that's, that's a big piece as well. I, I, when my re- resume was rewritten, there was the word supervisor put in a lot of the places in my resume. And it just see, it seemed weird to me that I was a supervisor in the Marine Corps because obviously we're not, you know, we're NCOs or staff NCOs or whatever the case may be. But yeah, so I definitely know what you're talking about. The words are different and you have to learn them. Well, even supervisor to manager in terms of title can be different as well. Typically in most companies, a supervisor is below a manager level um, or is more kind of, you know, entry level in some cases. So you have to understand within the industry that you're going into. Um, so you got to use, you, you got to you got to be very um, aware of, you know, what you're looking at. When you use um, verbs like command and order um, or things like that, that starts making you all of a sudden sound like you're a drill sergeant. Sounds like, you know, you're very rigid. And that's one of the things that most people in the private sector, especially in human resources, start believing anyway, is that you have a very rigid style of leadership, you know, that... Um, you're not somebody that can be an effective 360 day, uh, 360 degree leader, um, but instead you're used to going out and telling somebody to do something. They listen to you because of your rank, and I'm sure that that's exactly what happened while you were in the Marine Corps, right, Susan? I yeah, mean, exactly. Yeah. And today I finished Scott's book, and one of the uh, <laughs> chapters or, or parts of the book that I'm going to uh, teach to the young Marines, our next drill, is about body language because I think body language is it goes along with the language. Um, I'm notorious for body language still to this day. I like to cross my arms because, you know, Marines don't put their hands in their pockets and I'm notorious for the knife hand. Yeah. So this last week, I, um, after I heard that last podcast, I was like, oh dear God, that's so me. I now go to our eight o'clock production meeting with a cup of coffee in one hand and a pen in the other hand, because I can't put my hands in my pocket and I can't knife hand. So at least my hands are full and I can't do anything with them. Uh, but uh, that's great. I think body language goes along with it. And I get told a lot at work that my body language makes me seem very offstandish. Yeah. And I, watch out because... reti- it, it is. I've been retired this year 10 years. And you would think that after a while it would go away, but it doesn't unless you make a concerted effort. And I have learned through your past podcasts that uh, I have not made the concerted effort and I definitely need to. No more. Watch out with a pen. You'll be guilty of the pen point, which is the number one most hated body language science. I go from the knife hand to the number one hated thing in no time at all. Regression. But, you know, uh, the um, stereotypes are something, too, that ends up coming up because, I mean, a lot of um, in the private sector starts believing, okay, um, military that are coming away, especially from Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, or uh, they're they're uh, they have uh, PTSD. 
uh, when in fact only 7% of the total military have PTSD. Um, so the numbers are much different. Um, they start stereotyping you that everybody that's in the military, obviously your job was to, you know, you're, you're just train killers. That's what you are. So I don't know how that's going to relate to the private sector. Um, and it makes it even more challenging when you're going out there and you're having to um, get recertified in specific fields where the military had already trained you into something and certified you uh, or the skills and stuff that you learned should have certified you and equated within the private sector, but yet they didn't. So in other words, if you were a truck driver, you may not be certified to be the same. Or if you were a medic, you may not be certified to be the same thing out here in an EMT person. Um so uh, you have to make sure you understand what you've got to do there, uh, too, in translating. But it's probably more so because um, the private sector doesn't necessarily understand the military side of things and how we do things. Um, and and it, it, we have a long curve here still to go in trying to make sure we get that translation going. Um, you know, it's Well, and the translation goes both ways because – our ego gets in play, and we think that by default the civilians should understand our military talk, and so we use our acronyms and talk about being a staff NCO in charge of or a commanding officer of subunit A and commanded so many operations B and this and that, right? But we don't take the time to learn what they're looking to see and translate it into their speak when, in fact, we're looking for them to hire and pay us, and the chat room's kind of going crazy with the, the nonverbal barriers and stuff, so that communication barrier is is. Absolutely Absolutely, there are many levels, and I counsel clients all the time that your resume is indeed part of your nonverbal communication to your prospective employer. So much so. I mean, again, just based on how it is that you word things is automatically going to either look off-putting or it's going to look inviting. And you got to remember, as we you know hone in on this, that several times we pound home that you know a recruiter. Uh, or if, even if it makes it to a hiring manager, it typically takes three to 10 seconds to look at that piece of paper. So if there's anything that's off-putting, and as much as we also don't want to get into first impressions and talk about um, how, you know, uh, most people, you know, in the interview process really try to listen as a hiring manager and select the right uh, candidates for the right position. Um, the fact of the matter is they really focus on first impression. If you walk in the door and you got the wrong impression, if you sit down, you start using the knife hand, or if you, you know, start doing off-putting ways uh, in which you're handling the conversation, it becomes very aggressive. You're thinking, oh my gosh, maybe this person is too stiff and too rigid or, um, you know, again, all of those types of things are really off. You have to, you have to counterbalance the desire to stay true to yourself and who you are. And at the same time, understand the realm at which you're trying to incorporate yourself, right? I mean, it's a truism and we all say it that people like people like themselves. And yet we try and market our vast differences as prior military because of this pride and this massive chip on our shoulder when we go to these interviews, right? Like, you can't take that away from me. I served in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm a, I'm a veteran. You, I am who I am. You should pay me. It's not really how it works, chief. You know, you got to kind of play the game a little bit and show up and be prepared. I think it's a lot of the reasons why, you know, and even in your case, Susan, um, veterans end up helping veterans because they end up understanding um, kind of the background. And, and of course, this individual was not only somebody that could hire you and bring you on or help you in that process, but they were also kind of a mentor uh, in evaluating your, you know, background and how you need to position yourself better. Yeah, and I wish that when I went through the transition classes that I would have asked more questions and I would have taken advantage of the opportunities to get my resume written there 
so that I understood before I ever left Virginia what I was getting into moving to Ohio because there's not a lot of military here. So um, I, it's my own fault, and it, that would be the, the number one advice I'd give anybody is ask questions. Ask a lot of questions so that you have a true understanding of what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, most definitely. And of course, you know, we talked about mentoring and stuff as well, but it's really helpful when you get out and start talking to those who are very familiar with you and especially the background that you had. And perhaps, you know, um, the challenges that you may have had coming up through certain uh, fields or anything, um, that the reason why you are is that you were kind of molded over a 20-year process or 22-year process to be in that. Um, So now you're leaving um, what you're comfortable with and perhaps what the private sector is not accustomed to seeing. So you've got to make sure that you understand your audience. And I mean, the first thing of any type of speaking engagement is understanding your audience. And it's no different here. You've got to understand the private sector and how they're going to view you. You've got to be able to overcome the stereotypes. And you've got to be able to translate yourself in a way um, in which it looks positive. You know, I've spent the last five years being a unit commander of a young Marine unit here in Ohio. And speaking to... 20, 30 kids who range from the ages of 8 to 18 has really taught me how to speak to people who are not Marines. Um, and it was a situation, you know, obviously we can't swear in front of them and we can't yell and raise our voice. We can't talk to them like we would Marines. And so it's been a very, very eye-opening for me and a very good training episode for me for five years now that I've, I think I'm getting better acquainted with the civilian world because I have these little eight-year-old kids that are cute as buttons, but I'm trying to act like I'm tough, but I can't yell at them, you know, so it's been good for that. Yeah. (laughs) What was that, uh, Scott? said, darn it, if you can't swear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that makes it challenging. But, you know, that uh, does kind of, in a way, um, uh, demilitarize yourself. You know, when you start having to communicate with people who are not in the military, um, you know, when you're having to talk to kids and everything and explain it more about what you're doing and stuff without being able to just use a, you know, you got that, huh? You know, and, and the whole conversation now changes to where you're having to go through in detail about things and explain instead of an acronym, using an acronym, what it really is that you want them to do or where it is that you're going or something along those lines. And it, it changes the whole dynamic there. And it kind of um, changes. It starts changing you, you know, as it does. Well, something yeah. that, that I found for sure is that the. The directness and the bluntness with which you can speak to a military person, no matter what, you know, Marine, Air Force, Sailor, whoever, that directness and just that kind of mission focus, that doesn't translate well to, to normal people, you know. And, and Ryan in the chat room was talking about how he coaches his, his son's Pop Warner Football League, and that's helped him kind of demilitarize himself as well. But we think that this is just how everybody talks. And, you know, I, and I know going from a team room, some of the things that we would say to each other and just smile and laugh on my ODA, my, my A team to each other would, would be considered absolutely normal. And, and, but if you took that outside of that team room, oh my God, that, that would, I'd make somebody cry. In, in fact, I, I have, and I don't say this with pride, I've made some of my oldest son's teachers cry by accident because I'm just direct at them and I'm, I'm making eye contact and I'm questioning something that they said. And I don't know if it's because I'm questioning their authority, but especially Especially here in Australia, I've had to dial down just the directness and the bluntness of my communication style when dealing with people in equal positions of authority because it's awkward. 
Right. And, and, and being with the young Marines, it's making me practice. You guys talked about practice and rehearsing in one of your past podcasts. So when I teach classes to the kids, I have to practice what I'm going to say beforehand so that I don't put those inappropriate words in there. And it's, it really has helped me in my civilian job kind of tone down my directness as well. Oh, I bet. And and even the, you know, you mentioned tone. Tone's another aspect of it. I mean, if you do get in the interview process, you certainly want to make sure that you're not using a tone where you have to dial it back as well. Uh, you know, and with the young Marines, you like you said, you want to kind of assert yourself. You want to show a little bit of that, but yet they're kids, so you can't do it too much. But the same thing applies when you're talking to a, a prospective employer uh, or, you know, uh, subordinates or whatever in the private sector it's much much different in how you communicate and get your point across and um, stuff so that you don't do it in such a way that they find you very off-putting as well um, and not an effective leader especially if you're going for a leadership role within the private sector position or industry um, step step kind of step two is the the what so what do you translate? And we've been kind of covering some of these, but we talked a little bit about last week about um, things that were skills that might be a little hard to translate. And those things being like, you know, combat diver, airborne, or, you know, um, anything that, um, you know, ranger or, you know, the, the, the tabs or whatever that you have, it's it's becomes more difficult for you to try to find it. In many cases, when you're communicating in that private sector, they may actually think that you're talking about a hobby, you know, oh, you were a diver or, you know, hey, may it relates that way because they don't, unless they can see it actually applicable to the job, then they're going to think that it's not relatable um, and that it might be more of a, a hobby kind of thing. You know, you like to jump out of planes, you like to go diving, you like to, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but yeah, that's, uh, that's maybe how they uh, view it. And again, you're talking about the first gatekeeper taking a look at your resume and looking for keywords that pop up. And, and if they do get a chance to look at your resume, they're only going to uh, spend a matter of seconds on it trying to find things that stand out. And if it, you have more things that separate you and make you stand away because they sound more like that uh, type of hobby or um, those types of things, then of course you're not going to look more uh, applicable to the job or position that you're getting hired for. And part of that's expectation on our side, right? We expect the holistic world to know the difficulty of the schools and the things that we did in our careers and how trying or how much it took for us to overcome you know at the time or whatever i graduated five seer schools i i went to airborne school and i'm a halo jump master and they're going but you're applying to be a sales manager or you're applying to be a senior executive of this company how does we, we don't jump out of planes even on weekend retreats like what is that what does that translate to us so so the, the stuff that we take our absolute pride in, you know, dive school and special forces is, is notoriously difficult, right? And you got to be a kind of a physical animal to get through it and whatever. So everybody takes on that persona of being a diver when they do it. They want to broadcast it everywhere, shark tattoos and all this other stuff. But, you know, I'm kind of mocking the community a little bit, but that doesn't translate to many civilian jobs or almost any civilian jobs that I know of unless you're going to be a commercial diver. You know, and, and especially if you, um, you know, a lot of organizations are looking for certain levels to at least have a college education. And with that, I'm talking about a four-year degree um, they're looking for because they feel like that's the, the stop gate, you know, where before you can move on beyond this point, you need to have that. So, um, 
if, if you're all of a sudden starting to present yourself that, no, my military experience can actually translate and prove that I can go into that position because I have the experience to go with it, minus the education. Maybe I only have two years of college or three years of college or I'm a couple of classes away from completing my degree. You've got to be able to present yourself in a way um, in, in that opportunity that, um, you know, you can actually translate that. You can actually uh, take your military experience and the schools and experience that you have to offset those things that are gaps within the uh, the job position as well. Well, I, I, I mentioned, the, sorry, Susan, no, I, I mentioned the last two episodes as well, and I swear to God, Mike Weinberg is not paying me for endorsing him and his writings. But again, he says problem offerings and differentiators is, is the lens of three. And when you apply that to even job searching, right, that, that company is looking for an employee because they have a, a quote unquote problem. You have hopefully offerings to you know solve that problem. And the difference is in your differentiators, what makes you better or different or more capable to fill that. So oftentimes you say, I am uniquely suited to be a sales manager because not only have I sold in the Marine Corps and this and managed the defense contracting process and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I've also managed all these people simultaneously for the past 15 or 20 years. But instead what we get is retired Marine E8 and we expect them to translate that for us, right? So so trying to turn it into the, the lost in translation episode, we're our own worst enemies when trying to identify those very differentiators that could make us unique, but inadvertently we kick our own asses by default. Right. So when I re, um, interviewed for this job at the government contractor, I figured that I was going to get the job because I was, you know, basically given my resume was given to them by a recon Marine who was already buying products from them. So I already had an in, right? So I go into the interview and I was pretty confident. Um, but the first thing, one of the first things they asked me was, do you have a bachelor's degree? Thankfully, I did, but it never dawned on me that it would be a requirement to get a job at that company. I used tuition assistance when I was on active duty and got my bachelor's degree. And then when I after I retired, post 9-11 GI Bill became available and I went back to school and got a master's degree in supply acquisition, which was more in the specialty of buying government things. And that's how I got promoted. But it took me by surprise that a bachelor's degree was even a requirement to get this job. Thankfully, I had it, but you know, I didn't do my research. Well, and they know that, um, you know, I think statistically um, only 20 something percent or 30 percent of Americans actually go on to complete a um, bachelor's degree. Um, I think the numbers are relatively small from what it is, some of the stuff I had read recently. Um, but they do that because they know then that they're t getting the individuals who went off and made the extra effort, went off and paid the money, you know, and, and did that extra step. And so they know that you're kind of invested in a way, you know what I mean? You're invested in, um, you know, and, and by them, they think that that's actually going to make you a more qualified um, individual for especially supervisory roles uh, that you have to have it. It is a requirement. It's usually, sometimes it says, or um, that, you know, the job description will say, or, ex, you know, experience or something related experience um i can tell you that even though it says that if it says bachelor's degree on there uh, they they want that bachelor's degree you know and it's typical so you've got to make sure too you know like last week we were talking about marketing yourself and everything you've got to go out there and make sure as well that you've understood where you're going to in the marketplace the industry and what are the requirements to make sure you've met those things ahead of time and you've given yourself the runway to get it 
Um, but see, that's where we should excel, right? We should own that whole environment, especially, you know, 15 years of combat veterans now retiring, et cetera, right? Because we downrange, you can't do anything without a concept of the operation or a con-op. And so the first thing a commander looks for is, is, is the con-op in its entirety or that mid-level commander, mid-level manager, if you will, is that con-op in its entirety and all the slides filled out, et cetera. So we know to do the right things to get our mission done downrange. And yet when we approach job hunting, and transitioning is a mission, you know, going back to the problem solving episode. This is the problem we're trying to solve. So we should look at this like it's a mission. If we approach it like that, we don't look at it the same way. We don't do the requisite amount of research. We would never submit a con op down range that makes us look like, you know, we don't know what we're talking about. And yet we're happy just to make it rain with resumes across the internet on the expectation of because I was an 18 series or I was a SEAL or I was a Marine or I was a whatever that I'm going to get hired and get a six figure salary. You know, I mean, it even goes into the awards. We had talked about this a little bit uh, as well in the other podcast, but a lot of the private sector doesn't award their associates. Uh, you don't always get, you know, big plaques and, you know, they don't call you out front. They don't, you know, have 10 people standing there that they give a little ribbon to for participation or acknowledgement or, you know, a pin or whatever the case may be. That Yeah, that's that doesn't normally happen out here in the private sector. So even though you want to highlight your awards that you made within the military, they don't understand that. And they 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 it, it, in some ways it could become very intimidating to the person that is interviewing you which now that's a negative because you tried to highlight something that perhaps they'll never attain and so you're trying to make yourself better for them you've got to actually you're going into their world and it's sort of like a an individual that gets into the ocean they understand the sharks are out there it's their ocean it's not your ocean so you've got to understand how to survive within that space how to go out there and make yourself successful so that you don't get um bit and um that uh you know it, it takes the research it, it takes the time to be able to do that um you know, and I talked about in the past about like an example of information technology, uh, but there was an article that I, I read uh, earlier where um, there was somebody that had put on a resume that they were a certified DOD uh, mediator to hear EO complaints. That was the top headline of what they were. Well, what does that say? I mean, what is that really? What are you trying to do? So in that body, the employer is immediately going to look at it and go, what again was it that you did? I don't understand the details of this. Um, I, I don't understand what a mediator is. Uh, how did, I mean, how did this relate to settling disputes or uh, were you trying to resolve them? Or, you know, what is an EO anyway? You know, and a, a, what is an EO complaint? Um, so you, you've got to understand that... Uh, what you're doing within the military doesn't always apply uh, and using even terms like, um, you know, commander um, or duty, uh, duty is your responsibility, you know, or uh, being a section chief really means you're kind of a team leader. Um, you know, if, if you were a, you know, a, an officer, like a Colonel or Lieutenant Colonel, you might just be more of a member of an executive management team or a senior manager, well, great um, point, right? Sorry to interrupt, Robert. Yeah, but sure. How many people, how many civilians do you think understand the difference between commissioned officer and non-commissioned officer? Yeah, most don't. None. Yeah. Susan's shaking her head pretty vigorously there, so I'm guessing that she's running the same thing. Nobody gets it. And, and you know, Ryan Neal's in the chat room right now and, and giving gold, but... And then you talk, start talking about warrant officer and chief warrant officer three or chief warrant officer two. Like, people don't get it as a society. 
Yeah. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, I just had somebody, I went to lunch um, yesterday, and uh, somebody brought up the exact same thing and said that um, they were trying to understand the difference between enlisted and officers. And in the private sector, they don't understand that, um, and this person never had served in the military. So when they're looking at it, they think that everybody who is an officer has automatically you know, has an education, maybe even a master's degree, um, you know, their their roles and responsibilities are different. And that's partly true uh, because you do have to have a, a degree. But what you don't realize is in the enlisted side of it, there is a large percentage that already has degrees, came in on active duty with maybe even a master's degree um, and or um, they've already got at least associates and working towards a bachelor's. Um, so, I think that that's that misunderstanding that we were talking about, too, that you're going to have to get past. But you don't want to highlight those things in by stating that, you know, you, um, you know, you were a master sergeant uh, or a command sergeant major, you know, or something. Well, what does that really mean? You know, you were a, um, a command chief, you know, in a division, uh, you know, in the private sector, a division would mean a business segment uh typically you know you're a, a department head or something so is that kind of what it is or are you talking about something entirely different um so using terms like battalion you know um you know brigade uh fleet uh, well, without quantifying the actual numbers attached to that right because you could say battalion i go oh well all right you know team battalion unit whatever that's all the same to that is a unit of military whatever to a civilian but i know that a brigade is a pretty important when you rise up to that level right if you're a battalion sergeant major or the group sergeant major i understand the difference so you have to quantify that that is either in charge of x number or x times two or x times five or x times ten right because numbers matter and you have to so saying that i was a, a marine master sergeant great but then your next bullet should say senior position of entitled responsibility command you know directly supervising 58 Marines under my, you know, immediate reporting structure. It even helps if you actually state uh, a civilian job title that's very similar to that rather than just saying Master Sergeant. Maybe it's, you know, if you were a Master Sergeant leading or a Command Sergeant Major of a brigade or a battalion, then if you did want to qualify that, maybe that is a um, senior manager or um, director level position uh, overseeing 1,500 personnel you know, or 1,500 associates, you know, personnel is another thing, you know, associates are typically used a lot. So, I mean, you would, again, you would use the terminology that is very applicable to um, the market or the industry that you're going into. And you want to make sure that you don't, on your resume, try to highlight those things that start separating. Because if they have to figure out what a command sergeant major is or what a brigade or battalion is, and they got to continue reading your resume for them to understand it, you just lost them because you only had five seconds. So it's not going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we don't like if we like people who are like us, we dislike people who aren't like us. And so those differentiators aren't always going to work in your favor if you get and, and I'm not even going to start talking politics. Right. But when you start talking conservative, liberal and whatever, and they all abide throughout the real world outside of the military, you're used to being surrounded by type A guys who run at X level all day long. And all of a sudden you've got type A to Z and they run, you know, sometimes they don't run at all. They're out chasing butterflies and right field and you can't get them back on target to save your life so how do you convince them that you're worthy to be in their presence when you're just this pipe hitting military looking person that knife hands them and points a pen at them like susan does all the time 
<laughs> yeah, no kidding. No, I was just going to add that I think that sometimes we overestimate how much a civilian actually understands. I had a coworker see me a month ago out in the out in town with my young Marines and later during the week they asked me, hey, we saw you, you know, what were you doing? And I said, oh, I'm the unit commander of a young Marine unit. They didn't even understand what that meant. And I had to explain what a unit commander was and what's a unit commander? I'm the person in charge. I, I didn't know how else to put it. And so I'm thinking, I'm looking at the guy going, how can you not understand unit commander? But you'd be surprised what they don't understand if they've never served in the military. Yeah, they don't know. I've got the- friends in Australia who still refer to me as a Navy SEAL. And I want to slap him every time. And I'm going, look, Scott was in special operations. He's got a, He was a Navy SEAL. Don't mess with him. And I'm going, if you don't know how much that cut me to my core by you saying that right now. <laughs> well, I mean, you've got to understand you know the di- i mean they don't they don't get the the difference between a squad a platoon uh a company a battalion a brigade um and i'm using you know military more of army and marine corps but um you know in in air force squadron regiments and and uh navy it's fleets and so i mean it's different terminology mind you but we're still you're still trying to um, translate it for them and break it down again if you have three to ten seconds to make that first impression, you've got to do it in such a way that you're capturing them and explaining that you have the desired experience for the job description and it matches. So you've hit the similar keywords. You've evaluated the job. You've evaluated the industry. You've evaluated even the companies that you're going to work for to make sure you understand how you're going to fit, what you're bringing to the table is going to fit with that organization because you're probably not going to bump into somebody that's going to sit down and go, okay, Susan, I know exactly what you're applying for at this job. Uh, I mean, at this company, because I know the job, or maybe even I created the job for you. So I just want you to get you past the recruiter in the first stage over here. I just want you to write it this way. And if you do that, boom, you got the job. You know, more than likely, you're going to be going out there blind, just like everybody else. You're going to throw your piece of paper out there and hope it sticks to the wall. Or have a friend call you and tell you your resume sucks. <laughs> Sometimes we need the brutal honesty. Well, that's true. You know, but and Ryan Ryan Neal has got a great point in the chat room right now when he said that you know even within different services and different MOSs there's a huge variance in terminology. Unit commander is confusing. What size unit type of unit, etc. And you know I was about to make a joke earlier that when you were talking about the Navy, uh, Robert, that like I don't even understand Navy terminology when they say fleet or nav sup or this or that or whatever. And I spent five years in Marsoc is a federal guy. So sometimes, you know, even being in the community, you still don't understand the terminology. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but if we don't understand it within ourselves, how do we expect others and outsiders to, to get it? It's, it's a perfect example. So, I mean, the hardest rank to ever understand if you're somebody that's, say, in the Marine Corps or the Army, of course, the Marines, you associate with a lot more with the Navy. Um, so you probably get it easier. But, I mean, when you look at the military, uh, the Navy uh, officer, um, when you look at the, the Naval officer, the rank and everything, you know, a captain in the, the Navy is not the same thing as a captain in the Marine Corps or the Army. Um, no, so. That's ex- 
that my my executive officer of my young Marine unit is an active duty senior chief who just happens to be stationed here and he has two boys in the unit. And I still, for the life of me, can never write his rank correctly when I'm writing the ranks and billets of everyone on the staff on the whiteboard in the classroom. And he get he gets on my case and he's like, I don't understand why it's so hard. And I'm like, dude, there's so many letters in the abbreviations of Navy ranks yeah. that like, how do you memorize them? And he said, well, we don't. And I'm like, yeah, so how do you expect anybody else to? So yeah, the, I, Navy's, the Navy's bad. Yeah, and, and, you know, there'll be a lot of people that'll pride themselves on being a, you know, uh, lieutenant commander or a commander in the uh, the Navy and such. And then, okay, the, I don't understand what that is. But if I said, okay, well, you're a major or a lieutenant colonel, or so, oh, okay, now I, I might know it. But then I talk to somebody who's never associated with the military. They're like, okay, what is that? Is that sort of like somebody important? Is that... You know, is that in close to a general, um, you know, again, they start associating certain things that they may be familiar with. Maybe they had an uncle, a cousin, a friend, or they hear about certain positions in the news, you know, or certain ranks and everything as well. So, um, you know, you've got to be real um, aware of that. Another thing, too, is um, I know it sounds crazy, but something like strategy. You know, when people start saying, you know... Um, you know, if you if the position requires um, a knowledge of business strategy and stuff, and if you say, well, yeah, I did strategy within the military, okay, not every position does strategy within the military. I mean, true strategy sometimes is at very high levels. The rest of it is just kind of execute, to be honest. So, you know, and business strategy is much different than military strategy because in business strategy, it's more about shareholder value. In most cases, if you're a, a publicly traded company, if you're a private, it's just st- still the same thing. It's stakeholders and increasing the top and bottom line, uh, primarily the bottom line. And um, it's putting money in somebody else's pocket. So it's a little bit different of how strategy might work. You know, so you've got to understand how to articulate what you did if the job title or job description does have business strategy in there. I mean, first of all, Robert, I'd like to second your statement that the Marines identify very closely with the Navy because I I, I couldn't tell you how true that was. <laughs> <laughs> Bad stuff. Secondly, um, no, sorry, um, apologies. But this is a perfect segue to the when topic of when to translate your skill sets, right? Because when you're applying for, everybody in the military understands, you know, especially in the combat arms or, or et cetera, the tactical, operational, strategic, and all these different levels of command and importance and whatever. But when you're applying to be a mid-level sales manager or a car salesman or a real estate agent or whatever, you know, new startup investor, whatever that title is, and you start talking strategy, you, you're... We all know the, the saying, if it's too good to be true, then it's probably not true, right? So we, we, we civilians know that as well. And they go, this guy can't be all that he says he is in a bag of chips too. So when you come to them, like, I will solve every problem that you have, including tactical low level and strategic high level. I will solve all of them. Like, just give me, they're going to go, nope. This guy's a liar. He's not. He's not got. He can't possibly have these skill sets. But again, and I've said in previous podcasts, right? The the amount of work that any combat arms guy, anybody on deployment does anywhere around the world is staggering to a civilian. And when you bring that work ethic to them, you have to belay those expect- expectations of what you're actually doing and put it in the terms that they understand, or else you fall into the too good to be true category. And you're again, 
doing yourself that disservice. Oh, they totally so knowing when to translate. Yeah, and and they totally don't get it. I mean, Susan, you ran into this, and everybody thinking you're automatically human resources because you said administration. So yeah. it's it's knowing when to do it, how to explain it to the right people, and who your audience is at that right time, so that you can explain. Uh, if you get the foot in the door and if you get the opportunity to be in the interview process, then you can get the opportunity to explain the differences between what you did and what human resources is. And you'll have to take that opportunity to do it if the question comes up. You don't want to try to tackle it ahead of time, but um, you may want to put a little bullet or something in there as you're communicating. But communication, it kind of goes back again to a previous uh, podcast. So when you do the win, it's how to do it and how to effectively communicate. Yeah, and that's something that I'm still learning, and I, I've learned a lot from the last podcast, you know, the several past podcasts that you guys have done, because I've literally written notes about things that we do in my company that I don't agree with, but it's like Scott has said in the past, it's a game, and you got to play the game, right? So I take a lot of notes of how to say things that um, I, I would say myself um, differently. So I wrote down some of the things, like, my boss is real big on saying resources, not people. And I know that we all as military people disagree with that. And we all, you know, in Scott's book says people are more important than resources, but there are still companies out there who say resources are more important than people. people there are no people, it's all resources, right? Um, and one of the things that I got told a couple months ago in my annual review is I'm not allowed to say problems, they're challenges and we work through challenges, we don't have problems. So it's things like that, that I'm you know, learning to rephrase things in the civilian world to it's more temperate instead of more harsh, if that makes sense. Totally. Because they're gonna win, right? It's their game. You're playing in their stadium, in their field, in their sport, and they make the rules and provide the refs. So you can argue and fight and drag your feet all day long, but you're gonna lose. Yeah. And some of it's, I mean, some of it's semantics, like you uh, described and, you know, Mike talked about last week, but it's understanding what they would use in that, in those terms, um, how they would use those. Um, you know, I mean, even if you, uh, if you're very fortunate enough while you have time within the military and especially before, you know, you start thinking about the transition, uh, or not too far thereafter, and you can meet people that are within the industry or the types of jobs that you're looking at and, um, you know, if you have the opportunity to shadow them, great and all that, like uh, they were talking about um, last week and, um, you know, uh, Rob Clapper was talking about that's that's terrific, but not everybody has that opportunity. But if you can if you can sit and listen to those that are in the area that you're wanting to go to communicate, you're going to learn that they, or see that they have a very different communication style. Um, they're going to use different terms or different words that you're going to be just as lost if you would have been communicating with somebody, um, uh, you know, back about your military experience using jargons and acronyms and titles um, and stuff that we're very familiar with, it would have been the same thing. But like, you know, Scott said, if you're going to that industry and in that type of uh, job area, then you need to communicate that way because when you do at the job interview or if you do on your resume, then the translation is now the same. You're now speaking well, their lingo. 
it goes back to the research, right? And he's not on the show today, but he emailed me and threatened me that if I didn't drop his name, he would, you know, call me out. So Mike Pritz, the retired Sergeant Major, <laughs> one of the things that he said that most impressed me, and he said a lot of the things, honestly, that, that have impressed me, but was that desire when he reached out to his community and he learned that he was going down the wrong avenue for his degree completion and what he wanted to do. He thought that he had it all figured out. And yet, instead of taking that advice and just smacking it away and saying, nope, I'm a retired CSM, I've got X many years and soft and this, and here's my pride and I know what I'm doing, you go away. And then in two years, finding himself in the wrong circumstances, he took the advice, processed it, realized that he was wrong, adjusted course, adapted fires, and, and overcame that that hurdle. And a great financial burden, right? Like, what, what did he say last show? Is 10 times more money or whatever. So, but... But when you know and you do that research, it's just palpable to everybody surrounding you in the current community and the future communities that you are that type of guy that comes prepared no matter what that preparedness entails. And that's when you start winning, right, is when you show that you're prepared all the time, every time. Well, you know, we talked about in previous podcasts that you've got to be able to demonstrate that you um, can add value to that organization, so if you can't demonstrate that through your communication um, and how you verbalize things, then it's not going to, you're, you're not going to get your foot in the right door. Susan, you, you would even have, I would argue, the same type of challenge after working with some individuals that work for DOD um, or even DOD contracted organizations, the challenge of trying to articulate or translate their responsibilities of what they did for the DOD or DOD contract and then try to get a private sector job in a public uh, company that's not associated with the military and don't, you know, or don't, doesn't have contracts, and that's not what they're going to fulfill as DOD uh, contracts. Well, where I work, um, everything that we do is a DOD contract, all of the work, but all of the people that I work with are all civilians, except for me and one other retired Army Sergeant First Class who was a tanker. He and I are it. And so we both, we laugh all the time. We go into his office and shut the door and just like, oh, like it's so hard to communicate with these guys because most of them are engineers or research scientists who are on a completely different level anyway. And so then us trying to speak calmly, use the right words, deliver it correctly so that they understand what it is we're trying to say. He and I hold pivotal roles in our manufacturing facility and they put us there because we were not afraid to tell people the truth. But what we have found in the last, I've worked there nine years, he's been there 10 years, what we found is the truth isn't always the right thing in terms of what we're saying and how we're saying it. You know, So it's been a, a learned um, effort for a long time that I'm still not an expert at and so um, I encourage people who are getting out of the military, it's, it's the, my largest regret in that I didn't do my research and learn how to speak and act in the civilian world long before I had to figure it out on my own, which is now where I'm already in the job and struggling and have developed a bad reputation because I've got the knife hand going and I'm, I'm too forward. So, When I came to Australia, I was, I was a part of a 
large networking group in Sydney and it was, you know, the biggest, you know, business networks, international networking group. And you had all this, you know, kind of people that are going to sell your skills and all that stuff. So I'm standing up every Wednesday morning at seven o'clock in the morning, telling them, you know, who I am and what skills I bring. And I've got a couple courses that I teach and whatever, but I made a mistake one day. And I said, you know, in my body language class, we teach you how to weaponize your body language so that you can be on the offensive and, you know, truly, you know, create new opportunities and do this. And as a salesperson, increase your sales and whatever. And I had about 50 different people walk up to me throughout the morning. You you can't say weaponize. Like, that's just, what does weaponize mean? Like, you're, I'm going, it's a term, man. Like, I, I don't, I'm in, I'm in a suit and tie. I'm not telling you to hold a pistol or anything. Like, it's, it's a, a good point, that you though. Have. I mean, to think about if you had to put that uh, on your resume, I mean, and worded it that way. Um, again, I, but I mean, you know, I, what I was asking, Susan, is if you wanted to leave the industry that you're in, even though that you're around civilians, there's still civilians that have worked in a DOD contracting type of world. That That is the um, objective of your company is to meet the requirements of the client that it happens to be military. So in some ways, you probably help in acting as a liaison between the two because you understand how they speak and what they're expecting maybe from the company you work for. But if you were to leave that total space and go to the same type of job in procurement with in a um, another manufacturing making widgets that's not for the military or in drug manufacturing or something along that line in a pharmaceutical company, you would then find um, that you would have to retranslate everything. You'd have to learn a new way of communicating. Yeah. It's it's going to be like, again, another fish out of water. You're going to have to do yes. it once again. Yep. Learn it all over again and, and even calm myself down even more so than I already have. I, it's one of the hardest things that I've had to learn is how um, non-conflict the civilian world is. Yeah. Well, that there's a smile goes a long way. Instead of saying, you know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard come out of your mouth. Sometimes in, when you learn just to smile and kind of nod for a second and go one, two, three, four, <laughs> five internally before you speak. That, that, but that's a skill, right? When you just, right. I'm going to calm the waters, I'm going to smile, and I'm going to wait five seconds before I tell you how retarded you sound. But I, I brought you up. But again, probably retarded is a bad word to say, so <laughs> I haven't fully learned how to translate my own. That's, that's, that's true, Scott. So, you know, getting back to you, Susan, you know, the uh, – the and you know the translation and the whole thing the reason why i brought that up is because i'm hoping that people who are coming off of back to duty really understand that um it's not a one and done if you're looking at changing industries if you're in the you know manufacturing and you're going to go to the transactional or if you're in the transactional and you're going to go to the manufacturing uh, within the business world you may be doing the same job but it's a different language that you're going to now have to learn you're going to have to learn how to translate your skills in a way that makes you attractive to that employer because they don't see you manufacturing they see you transactional processes so they don't see that you understand their world um and uh, you know so Understand that the challenges that you may be in and trying to translate your military experience will continue and you're going to have to become an expert at doing that. And it's, it's again, going back and being very self-reflective, understanding how the uh, industry uh, views your experience and how to then and learn how to then communicate effectively um, to get your point across and do it in a way that's not, um, you know, getting in their face with the knife hand and the whole bit. Um so, I mean, I, I think um, t 
talent recruiters and, and human resources professionals, um, you know, their their job in a lot of cases is to help screen for the hiring managers. And they're going to go down through those resumes and they're going to look for what is required and or um, things that are preferred. And in some cases, if a, if a talent recruiter or a human resources um, personnel look at it and the hiring manager may have emphasized a preference as if it's a requirement, then that's what they're going to hone in on as well. Um, so matching your keywords, understanding how your skills have to translate to the private sector, understanding the industry that you're in, um, doing your homework really is what we're talking about here. It's understanding where you're going, where you're headed, um, and what it is that you want to do. Um, if you can communicate to friends and loved ones and everything and and start using terms that they look at you and or they nod their head a lot but they're not really communicating then that means they're not understanding what you're saying you're not breaking it down to a basic sense that they can understand what it is that you do so all of us have had the question even in the private sector what is it that you do so then you've got to go in yeah, yeah. So you either can answer that really quickly and in a way that they'll understand it. Oh, okay. You know, uh, so you go and purchase things and then you sell them or, you know, okay, I get it. You know, Um, so, I mean, you've got to be able to communicate and I don't like to use the term like dumb it down, but you got to put it at a very basic level. You got to make sure that you can, but not so basic that it puts you again out of a position that you may be applying for that's more senior. Um, because you've got to be able to communicate in that manner if you're applying for something much higher as well. Um, but it's under it's it's understanding your your uh, your industry, your job, and in the field, and and understanding what you do and where it fits in that organization. I was in the chat room a couple podcasts ago, and one of the comments that I had made and Scott read it out loud was, "You got to practice your elevator speech." And the the reason that I put that in that chat room at the time was because I had a meeting at our headquarters building and got stuck in an elevator with some person that I didn't know and they asked me who I was and where I was going and what I did for that company and I just stood there like um I don't have an elevator speech and it made me realize oh crap maybe I need one for the very reason that if I and I work for a large company if I meet someone who just happens to be important in the elevator I need to be able to sound articulate like I really belong there and at the time like I made a fool out of myself in the elevator because I didn't have my speech prepared I didn't practice I didn't do all of the things that you guys have been talking about in your podcast so take it from me Uh, lessons learned Sometimes it might be a project or initiative that you're working on. Hey, Susan, I understand that you're working on the project XYZ. Uh, can you give me a little heads up as to what's going on with that? What's the status? Uh, what's your role? Boom. You may have to spit that out uh, within like 30 seconds, 60 seconds or 90 yeah. seconds, you know, whatever time that that person has and, you know, articulate it that way. If you can do that for each job that you did or each main bullet points and stuff like that in a way that they're going to understand your background and, and skills and experience. That's because you, you practice that communication. Practiced piece. It. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, Ryan's got a great point in the chat room saying it's the message, the messenger and the content. And you got to be cognizant of all three things in order to have yourself and what you're trying to get across heard and understood as intended. And that couldn't be more true, right? Because it, oftentimes our elevator speech might be geared toward a past community that we were a part of and we fail to translate that elevator speech into the current community. So it's it's the message and what you're trying to convey. But most importantly, a full third of it or more is the recipient of that conveyed message. And are they going to understand what you're saying or are they going to get off the elevator and go, 
I don't know what she just said, but it sounded like a bunch of gibberish, you know, and, and no offense yeah. to Susan, but we, we all have to practice that. But we also have to know, I told a general of Marsoc once, and I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating. And he was a two-star general that he said, Hey, what do you do? And I said, I'm the special activities program manager. And he goes, Oh, like birthday parties and retirements. <laughs> and I went, yes, sir. Exactly. That's exactly, exactly what I do. Birthday parties and retirements. Yeah. And he's like, carry on. And I carried on. So, you know? Yeah, you and know, not the uh, not what special activities is. I'm no. just saying that we got to understand the recipient and what their education level on you and your background. And, and a lot of times, you know, we get so wrapped up in who we are and what we've done in our own paradigm internally that we can't translate that. We can't get out of our own heads to understand that that recipient doesn't have the same paradigm that we do. They, they've looked at the world through an entirely different glass, and that's fine. That's, that's, that's what we want, right? You want to surround yourself with people who empower you, educate you, and are better than you because if you find yourself as the smartest person in a room, you're in the wrong room, right? So always surround yourself with better people, but always be adapting your message to that recipient. You know, uh, if you think about going to another country, if you've ever traveled abroad, which most military people have, and you go and try to speak a different language in a different um, country, um, you're going to have that gap. You're going to have that um, communication barrier on occasion where you're going to have to be you know, able to explain um, something. And that's kind of what we're talking about. Uh, but two, I like what you said there, Scott, about trying to make sure that you understand what role in your peer group and everything else that I've har- uh, you know, h- uh, harped on a lot during past par- podcasts. And it goes back to a book, uh, I think it was uh, Maxwell that I read a long time ago that said, if you're a leader and you kind of see yourself as a you know, a scale of one to 10 as a seven, you're not going to go want to go work for a seven. You're not going to want to even maybe work for an eight. You're going to work for somebody that's maybe a nine so that you can learn something from them. And so that's the same thing is if that's what your goal is and you're driven out there within the private uh, industry to belong in that space and you're wanting to also excel, you're going to have to learn that language. You're going to have to learn how to communicate and you're going to want to do it in a way that you can surround yourself with those intelligent people that will challenge you back and make you even better as you move through that, um, that industry. And that's very true, but instead of learning that lesson quickly, we have this cycle of being a self-licking lollipop that we, okay, I'm not going to adapt myself. I'm not going to change myself. I'm not going to educate myself. I'm going to be me, and I'm going to take job I hate number one, and then in six months to a year, I'm going to take job I hate number two, and then in six months to a year after that, I'm going to take job I hate number three, and then five or six years later, you're A, obsolete, and B, burnt out, and you have no skills left to translate because you've been just spinning your wheels incessantly for the past three to five years. So be proactive. Again, you know, this is what I love about these shows, right? Is I hear ourselves talk and it's not validating me or anything I've said, but is I hear what we're, the, the, the communication and, and stuff in the chat room and, and on the show itself, it's all cyclical, right? Like know who you are, adapt who you are, solve that problem, do the right things, be proactive, not reactive. These are all the same themes that we keep hitting, not in a redundant and, you know, annoying type of way, I hope but in a way that empowers people and educates them that there is a, a rough world out there that you have to be prepared to live in post-military. I'd like to note, uh, too, that a lot of the guys that you've had on your show have all been um, 
special forces and, and operators and whatnot. And uh, I think for anyone who was in the military who was not an operator, say admin, motor T, supply, whatever, we all have the same struggles that the special forces guys and recon guys do when they get out. I think it's the mentality of being in the military um, that changes you as a person. And even though my job skills may have been easier to translate to something in the civilian world, I still struggled with it. I still struggle with, you know, the the speaking and the knife hand and all of the things that we joked about before. So um, I, I would hope that people who are listening who are not special forces understand that they don't get a free pass just because they weren't an operator. Um, this, all of the things that you guys have talked about applies to anybody, regardless of MOS, leaving the military. Yeah, good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Because <clears throat> when you think about it, we're really just trying to share past experiences. And of course, if you have that background, you're going to bring that to the podcast. And, you know, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're trying to cut out specific branches or specific um you know, military occupational specialties or whatever the case may be. I think it's all the same and it brings up a great point because it's it doesn't matter also if you're enlisted or your officer, what your rank was, um, because we talk about that your rank is going to leave you. So you can make your resume, if you're an enlisted person, look just like an officer's resume does if you know how to translate your experience and your skills to that of which the private sector you're applying, you know, the industry, the job, or, you know, whatever the case may be. It's irrelevant what it was. Um, and, and I mentioned this, I think, in previous podcasts. I took my resume and tried to make it where the only thing that was on there that anybody would see that anywhere put me in the military was I had U.S. Army every in every job description other than that i changed the job descriptions i changed the wording of what it was that i did i used my bullets to describe it in a way that's the private industry i tried to quantify it as well in terms of you know uh things either i attained uh in certain positions um percentage wise increased uh, quality you know things that were going to be important to that company that was evaluating it um yeah that, that's a good point and i i think that even my resume still probably has a few things on there that are military that I could probably delete and, and make, you know, not a, apparent to someone who's reading my resume. Um, I think one of the, my, uh, when I left Quantico, you know, I was an admin chief title wise, but I was a section chief of a whole bunch of admin clerks who did a bunch of work for operational units in the Marine Corps. And I worked with a lot of recon Marines, which is how I got the call sign girl master sergeant because they always called me a girl. And uh, I always thought that when I retired, I would have a much easier time getting a job in the civilian world because I knew how to act around generals and whatnot because I was admin. But my own arrogance, you know, thought, oh, I'll have a way easier time than those recon Marines because those recon Marines act like animals, right? But it was no different. I struggled just like they struggle. So that was the point I was trying to make. It doesn't really matter what your MOS is. We all have the same struggles. And I agree with you a, a thousand percent. I mean, if I in any way imply that this is only a problem that special operators have, oh, it's just no. because I only look at I, that's the only lens I have. Basic training, airborne school, doing conventional military time. I spent well then five years at Marsoc, but uh, they're supposed to be special operations too. So <laughs> there's my joke of the day. 
<laughs> Boy, you just keep uh, sticking it in there, don't you? So, um, yeah, I think uh, I think it's a very valid point, and and I hope that that's what we're trying to you know it, it comes across to everybody that's listening that we're not trying to um, alienate certain branches or certain MOSs or skills or background. It's just you bring to no. the show. You know, but I, I think it's I a very valid point. What you're I don't yeah. think that's what you're trying to do. I guess the point I'm trying to make is for someone who's listening, who's an admin clerk or a motor T guy or a supply clerk, don't think that you are going to have an easier time getting a job in the civilian world more so than an operator because you're not. That's the point I'm trying to make because we were all we all went to boot camp. We all got trained a certain way. We all come out the same way. It doesn't matter what your MOS is. So that that was the point I was trying to make. Yeah, and I think you know you you all we all have to translate our military experience in in the same type of way we're going to reach the yes. same challenges and in some cases you've got to get past the first barrier that, that if they see on your resume that you were in the military there are those stereotypes that are automatically going to come out um, and it, even if you're the hiring manager because um, there was somebody that um, that uh shared with me a story about two positions that were or a position that they were hiring and one was a former military and one was not and the people just couldn't get past how the military experience would ever relate to that job because the fact it was military how does it even come close i don't get it you know and that's that's what you're trying to overcome and again if that piece of paper is your first step out there and i know we were talking a lot you know about resumes tonight but even in the interview process if your resume then was done by somebody else because they say, Susan, let me help you do your resume and kind of civilianize it, you know, um, and, and put it in terminology that they would understand. But then you get your foot in the door and it gives you the opportunity to interview and you're still communicating. You're still doing the knife hand. You're still doing the, the broad shoulder look and the way that um, and, and the way you're doing it is totally against what your resume said. Right then you just misled that individual and they're going to size that up in the first 20 seconds. And we talked about first impressions. Boom. You just made your first impression. And that's probably going to be the end of it at that point. You'll never yeah, make it to the second again, round. It, again, we all know the same and you can't reverse a first impression, right? I mean, rarely it happens, but you walk in the interview and you've got this fluffed up resume that your civilian friend wrote and said, Oh, I know all about your 22 year military Marine career. I'll help you out. And then you walk into there and you're either a unprepared or B completely contrary to what they think that you're going to be. So there's an element of being true to yourself, but also importantly is again, I hate to be a one trick pony here, but as Ryan keeps saying in the chat room, knowing that value that you add to that company and what you bring to that puts you on the next level pedestal, even starting the interview because they already see you as a potential problem solver and value added versus just another potential employee. And then you highlight your differences in a positive way and you're off rolling. We might just have to put Ryan on this side of the microphone. Uh, I keep telling him. And give Ryan, him you do a great job out there. The time, but. Yeah, you're doing a great job out there uh, in uh, explaining some of this stuff. Because, I mean, it's it's not really um, hard. It's not rocket science or anything. It's really basic. And I think that's the thing that's most challenging is that people make it probably bigger than what it is. Uh, and that has a lot to do with not doing the proper research or that they're they're being counseled um, in a wrong fashion. Uh, they're being told things um, that are not necessarily truths uh, about how it is that you've got to go out there and present yourself. Um, you know, um, I, I think... Uh, 
we've certainly been going here for a while, and I want to make sure that we kind of summarize what it is that we've been talking about as well, because um, there's a lot of good stuff that we've repeated over the last previous podcast that we've you know, said again, and we're going to continue talking about in uh, future podcasts. But when you talk about translation, think about it in, like we mentioned just a moment ago, in learning a new language and trying to speak to somebody who is unfamiliar with your country or what it is that you're describing and you're having to do it um, so that they, they do understand it. Um, understand the audience by going out and doing some research. And even if that's Google or Yahoo or whatever, to try to research you know, the industry or the jobs, evaluating the job descriptions that you're looking at. And then uh, once you do that, Know um, what it is that you're wanting to translate. So are you trying to translate your skills and experiences? Are you trying to translate your schools that you went to in the military? Are you trying to help them understand the awards that it is that uh, you were, you know, the awards that you achieved, um, you know, so that they can gain that knowledge better? And then when to translate it, you know, it's the resume, it's the interview time. Um, it's making yourself look professional to the other side again, so they can see the value to the organization. So that kind of wraps it up uh, for Lost in Translation. Um, Susan, appreciate you being on here. And for those who are, may not be aware, Susan's going to be joining us. Uh, the month of March is uh, Women's Month and uh, National Women's Month. And I've asked Susan to come on the podcast uh, moving forward so that we make sure that uh, we touch on a lot of the stuff within the month of March um, that focuses on uh, women within the military, uh, our spouses and stuff that support us. And um, I think it'll be really good uh, for um, Susan to join us and uh, keep Scott on the uh, the even kill on occasion. So um, appreciate Susan you join us tonight. And uh, on behalf of Susan, uh, Scott, uh, I'm Robert Gowan, and uh, we'll talk at you next week. Thanks so much for joining us here in the podcast. And be sure to check us out on SoundCloud, iTunes, mentorsformilitary.com, and join us in the Mixler room next week. You guys have a great evening.